Let me invite you to open your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue our study of this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. We'll begin our reading, backtracking just a little bit, back to verse 6, the passage we looked at last time. We were in 2 Corinthians, and our focus will be on verses 11 to 15. Here now, the Word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here ends our reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your Word this morning now, we ask that you would teach us from it. Father, we ask that you would instruct our hearts that we might know you better. Father, we pray that you might reveal our hearts, that we might be known. Father, we thank you that as you reveal our hearts, you do so to renew us in grace so that we might be more like Jesus to your glory and honor. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us today not merely to be hearers of the word, but doers of it as well, that we might be strengthened by your spirit to go from this place having been refreshed and changed by your word. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are a number of signs of aging that just about everyone can agree on. Now, they're pretty visible, pretty visible, I should say, even to the most casual observer. One sign that isn't on the list, though, is one that I've seen a lot over the years, even, I have to confess, in my own life. And that sign is this, that is the gradual appreciation and even, should I say, enjoyment of country music. Now, some people, I'm sure, would label that as a sign of early-onset dementia, uh, maybe owing to a genetic defect, maybe from eating too much fried food over the lifetime, whatever. But I think there's another reason that country music tends to grow on us over time. And it has to do with the fact that country music, when it isn't extolling the virtues of rednecks and tractors, often talks about real life in ways that make us think. And a prime example of that is uh, Faith Hill's song, The Secret of Life. Let me just share some of the lyrics with you. It starts like this. A couple of guys sitting around drinking, no surprise there, down at the Starlight Bar. One of them says to the other, I've been doing some thinking. Other one says, that won't get you too far. And so there the conversation begins. And these two guys begin to talk about, and, about what is the secret of life. And they start to offer some observations here and there. And then they give up a bit, and then they start, turn to Sam the bartender, and they ask Sam the bartender what he thinks. Well, he doesn't say anything for a while, but, but when he finally speaks, this is what the sage of the bar says. He says, the secret of life is getting up early. 
The secret of life is staying up late. The secret of life is try not to hurry, but don't wait. Don't wait. The secret of life is a good cup of coffee. The secret of life is keep your eye on the ball. The secret of life is to find the right woman. The secret of life is nothing at all. Oh, it's nothing at all. Well, I'm not so sure I agree with all of the conclusions that those guys come up with sitting around drinking and thinking. But they do have a point. There really are some things that are important in life, and and often they really are the simplest things. And the sad truth is that many, many people spend their lives ignoring those things and pursuing things that, that really don't matter all that much in the end. Point well taken. But that said, is that really all there is to it? Is the secret of life really just a dose of homespun wisdom about the little things that we need to pay attention to? Is it really just a good cup of coffee? Now, I'm pretty confident that in this room, most of us, if not all of us, have mentally answered no already to all of that. I would certainly hate to think that Starbucks is truly the secret of your life or mine. And yet the question that those two guys ask is a good question. And it's not one that we always know the answer to, even if we know there's more to it than what we hear on the radio. And that's why I find that what the Apostle Paul has to say here in this portion of 2 Corinthians to be so intriguing and so helpful in getting to the answer of that very issue. You see, over the last several chapters, as Joseph's been opening this to us, we've been watching Paul do battle. It's very civilized in a way, but he's doing battle with some men who have questioned his integrity, They've questioned his motivation. They have even questioned his legitimacy as an apostle of Christ to do what he's doing and to preach as he's preaching. These opponents have come into Corinth, and they've dazzled the church there with letters of commendation from all the important people that supposedly are to commend you. And they've dazzled with their charisma. They've dazzled with their claims of spiritual superiority. And that, in turn, has forced the apostle Paul to have to talk about himself and to talk about his ministry in a way that makes him extremely uncomfortable. And yet Paul does what he has to do here to defend his position and to defend his authority with the Corinthian Christians, not for the reason we usually do when we run into this sort of thing because our pride's been wounded and we feel the need to go to war to make us feel better again. No, Paul does this for the best of all possible reasons, to defend his right and his calling to teach the Corinthians the truth of the gospel, truth that they need in order to know God and to grow in grace together. Well, as Paul does this over the course of several chapters, and he's not done yet, he takes us deeper and deeper into the nature and meaning of what he calls here the ministry of the new covenant. But more than that, as he does that sort of thing, he takes us into the nature and meaning of life itself as we live it in Christ. And let me tell you, folks, that's useful information for people like us as we live our lives as men and women of God for this relatively small amount of time that we have on this earth. So what is the secret of life? Well, as we look at this passage for a few minutes this morning, what we'll see is that according to Paul here, a life that will be worth something in the end is a life that is lived out now under the compulsion of the love of Christ. Let me say that again. A life that will be worth something in the end is a life that is lived out now under the compulsion of the love of Christ. Now, I'm aware that some of you may be thinking at this point, that's it? 
That's all you got. I mean, after all, life is a pretty complicated thing. At least my life is, or it seems to be to me. And the complicated things of life often don't yield to simple answers. And yet that's exactly what Paul boils it all down to here when it comes to the way that, we, the way that he lives his own life, the way that he serves the Lord in this lifetime that he's been given. That's what he boils it down to. And you see, the reason this can be so helpful to us is that in these few verses, Paul helps us understand what a worthwhile life looks like in the first place. And he also shows us where to find the supernatural energy to live a life like the one he describes here. He gives us a definition, and then he gives us the power. So with that in mind, I want us to dig in. Notice, first of all, that according to Paul here, a worthwhile life is a life that is lived for God and for others. A worthwhile life is a life that is lived for God and for others. I have a vivid memory to this day of a conversation that I had with my dad one time. I forget whether I was in high school or in college, but I still remember visiting with him at his office one day and standing in the doorway of his office, and and we were talking, and I was doing what students always do. I was complaining about being stressed over an upcoming exam week. I will never forget what he said to that. He never even really looked up. He just said, every week's exam week for me. Every week's exam week for me. Now, I know that for those of you who are still in school, what I just said may have crushed your hopes just now for the freedom of adulthood that you look forward to as you do your homework every night. You think that someday all that exam stuff will be behind you. But I have to tell you, the fact of the matter is, Dad was right. Dad was right. And that sense of pressure is one of the primary things that we all have to work with every day. But it has a useful element to it as well, doesn't it? It helps keep us focused. It helps keep us engaged in the workplace from day to day. It's not all a bad thing. Well, according to Paul here, he felt the pressure of an upcoming exam very keenly. And it shaped his priorities and his choices in a striking and powerful way. And the thing that you and I need to grasp this morning is that the same exam waits for us just as it did for Paul here. Notice, according to verse 10 here, Paul always has in the back of his mind that there is a date with judgment out in his future someday. Notice what he says, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now the question is, who is the all he's talking about here? This context is clear. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. He's saying that all we believers have a date with a judgment seat out in front of us. Now it's important at this point to realize what he's not saying. He's not saying here that this judgment to come for the Christian is about whether we'll be saved from eternal punishment or not. You know, Paul has preached from the very beginning that salvation is by faith alone and not by anything we have done or anything that we can do or will do to make God accept us. And he's not changing his tune now. And we know this in part because he describes the judgment seat here as the judgment seat of Christ. It is the one who came to redeem his people at the sacrifice of his own blood, the Son of God and Savior of sinners to whom we must appear. But that said, according to Paul here, there's still a date with judgment for all of us who know Christ waiting out there in the future for us. And the point of that judgment is to assess the way that we have lived our lives as Christians. Now, he says here that the accountability demanded on that day 
will be for things that are done in the body, for the way that we've lived our lives here on earth. And it's tempting for us to think we're going to see this, this scroll of all the things that we've done, good stuff, bad stuff, this whole scroll. But when you look at the language, what you realize is that Paul is saying that at the end of it all, and you, when we sum it all up, when we look at our lives here on earth, there will be a determination of what they were like as a whole, what were they devoted to as a whole. And the assessment will focus on whether or not those lives have been, according to Paul here, good or bad. He's not saying good or bad in the sense of whether they've been virtuous or evil. That's really not quite his point here. What he's saying, he's talking about good or bad in the sense of whether they have been worthwhile or worthless. It's exactly what the word bad there means, worthless in the way that they've been lived. And according to Paul here, the fact that there is an assessment coming like this for every one of us who name the name of Christ ought to produce in us what it produced in Paul. Notice verse 11, he says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We persuade men. Paul says, this knowledge, this understanding produces a fear in him. It's not the abject terror of the man on death row who knows his time is up and hears the footsteps of the executioner coming, but rather it's the healthy reverence and awe and respect that a child feels for a father when he knows that dad has come to inspect what the children have done. And that's what our father will do with the lives of his children, the lives that have been given them by the Savior. Well, according to Paul here, according to Paul, his goal in life is to live that life well. With that in mind, he now backs up to what is he going to do with this life, and his goal is to live that life well. In other words, his goal is to hear on that day of judgment from Christ the Savior, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And according to Paul here, The sort of life that will be rewarded like that is a life that is lived for God and for others, not just for self. Now, the false teachers in Corinth were doing just the opposite of that. According to Paul here, they lived life for the impression that they could make on others. And so that's why they were so obsessed with pumping up their own credentials with letters of recommendation and stories of spiritual conquest and displays of power and all the rest of it. That's also why they are so obsessed then with tearing down Paul's credibility and his true authority at the same time. But you see, for Paul, everything worth living for was outside of himself. From what Paul says here, some people apparently looked at the way that he gave himself totally to the gospel and thought he was out of his mind. It's not the first time we've heard that. Jesus is teaching one day and word comes to him from the back of the crowd, your mother and your, and your brothers are here and they want to speak to you. And why are they there? They're there because Jesus has been so busy teaching he hasn't had time to eat. Now what Jewish mother can let her boy go without dinner, right? He's crazy. He's lost his mind. So we've got to go get him. Paul says, if I am out of my mind, he says, there's a reason. The way I live, the way I live totally for the gospel, the way I live in reference to God with my life, it is for God and for his glory. If I'm crazy, it's for him. But on the other hand, their experience with Paul is a very sane man, a sober teacher, one who loves well, who cares well, who leads well. And Paul says he's not living that way to impress anybody else. He says, if I am in my right mind, verse 13, he says, it is for you. He did what he did for the prophet of the Corinthians here spiritually and for no other reason than that. And according to Paul, 
They know in the depths of their own hearts, from their own experience, and their collective conscience, he says, that what he is saying here is true, and he knows that God knows the truth of that claim as well. Now, one of the things that you, could, that you see when you read over chapters 4 through 7 and beyond is that Paul absolutely hates talking about this. He just hates this. And the reason he hates it is because it makes him sound like he's trying to impress them, just like the false teachers were. And there's no one he wants to be less like in this world than them. And yet Paul is willing to do this, he says, so that they can have something to say back to those false teachers when they start to run Paul down, not for Paul's sake, but for the sake of the gospel and for those who have heard the gospel from his mouth. But here's the thing. The very fact that Paul is willing to engage in this kind of conversation in the first place is proof of his commitment, his commitment to do what is necessary for the sake of the gospel and not just to make himself feel good. He does this because he loves. He does it for the spiritual benefit of those who have heard the gospel from him in the first place and for the glory of the God who has given this gospel to him. It's because a life that is worth living is one that is lived for God and for others and not for self. You know, when we lived in Colorado, we learned that uh, one of the interesting quirks of Colorado culture is that they like to communicate their observations and feelings about the world via the bumper sticker on the back of their car. I'm getting a nod from the audience over here. Joseph's like, yeah, I remember that. It's fascinating. I remember being in Birmingham one day at General Assembly, and I was stuck in traffic like you are sometimes, and I was sitting behind a car, and my eyes sort of focused and realized that there were, you know, a half dozen bumper stickers on there, and it was for this cause and that cause and the other cause and all the rest of it. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm in Birmingham, but I feel like I'm just at home. And then I looked a little more closely, and there were Colorado plates right there in Birmingham. I thought, It's true. This is how they communicate with the world. Well, one of the more universal bumper stickers that we all have seen, I'm sure, uh, is the one that read, He who dies with the most toys wins. Of course, then you may also remember the one that was put out in response to that one that says, He who dies with the most toys still dies. Interesting conversation. The point of those bumper stickers, though, I think, was to ask a great question. And the question is, how do you measure a successful life? Well, according to Paul here, you can measure a worthwhile life by looking at its subject matter. What is it about? Well, for Paul, when we use that scale, this complicated life we lead gets pretty simple. It gets pretty easy to measure. All we have to do is ask ourselves two questions on a regular basis and actually tell ourselves the truth. First of all is this. First one is this. How much do I live for God? and not for all those things that want to put themselves in God's place in my life? That's the first question. The second one is like unto it. How much do I live for others and not for myself? Knowing that when I answer that question, I have to look there and see how much of what I've done for others has been done to impress them with what a nice guy I am in the first place. Truly done for the good of others. The ultimate issue for us when the whole of life is weighed on the scales at the judgment seat of Christ to see whether there's weight or there's worthlessness there is going to be answered by what we have done with those two questions. And the answer to that question is decided when we choose the subject matter of each hour and of each day because that's how we live it out. 
And that's the only place we live it out. Sometimes we say, oh, yes, my life's about God and my life's about others, but the next six hours are about me. It doesn't work that way. It only happens when we get down in the daily basics. What is the subject matter of my life? A, A life that is weighty, that is worth the living, is a life that's about God and it's about others. But that still leaves open a second question, and that question is this. If that's what a life worth living looks like, How in the world can a person that looks like me live that life in the first place? And so that's why Paul goes on to show us here that the energy to live a worthwhile life comes from the love of Christ for us. The energy to live a worthwhile life comes from the love of Christ for us. Now, Karen and I got a chance to go last week for a couple of days down to New Orleans for just a little quick getaway. Been down there for other things, but I've never been down there just to go down there. So we had a nice time, just kind of hung out, did our thing. But while I was down there, I had to do something I do every time I go to a town that the Mississippi River flows through. You always have to go get a nice look at the big water, don't you? And so we were down in the French Quarter. There was a spot that was easy to get to, so we walked up. And they always top that levee and look out there again and see... This massive river. But I'll tell you, it always, something different always strikes me when I do that, especially down there in New Orleans. This time, what struck me was the current. How fast it was moving. How many different directions it seemed to go. It was just, just flying through there. With all the water that we've gotten over the end up in the Mississippi Basin all these, all these months, it, it was just pouring through there. Well, you know, anyone who's even been canoeing knows what a difference it makes to shift from paddling upstream to paddling downstream, to go from fighting the current to flowing with it. And the bigger the river, of course, the stronger the current, both ways. We understand that experience. Well, you know, as any of us have lived a while can tell you, life is a mighty big river. And to try and live for God and for others in our own strength, just by deciding we're going to do it and we're going to gut it out from there on out. It would be like me trying to take a kayak from the Gulf all the way to the headwaters of the Mississippi. It would be a long and arduous journey, and I would likely drown on the way. Well, friends, according to Paul here, there is a way to turn into the current and find strength that is outside of us for this task. And that way is all about how much we know and how much we live in the light of the love of Christ for us as his holy and beloved children in this world. You know, it's according to Paul here, there is one reason that he lives the way he lives. And that reason is the love of Christ. Let's listen to verses 14 and 15 again. Paul says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, when you read Paul there and you see that phrase, the love of Christ, you realize it can be taken in one of two ways. And you kind of have to decide back and forth. And the the people that write the books about it all kind of bounce back and forth to that. You know, he could be talking about, Paul could be talking about his love for Christ. That would correspond with many a sermon preached by this preacher and many others about living the Christian life, and for good reason. We obey because we love, and that's true. But as we know, that phrase, the love of Christ, could also be talking about Jesus' love for us, that love that that precedes our love for Christ and is the genesis of it in any of our lives. Well, that said, 
The reason we know he's talking about Jesus' love for us here is because he goes immediately on to say that the proof of that love is found in what happened at the cross. And so he takes us right back there to Calvary. You see, as Paul reminds us here, when Jesus died, he died in our place. In other words, his death wasn't just an example to us of sacrificial love. It certainly was that. Nor was it a theoretical sacrifice designed to make the way open for possibly open for any who might believe someday and be saved. No, according to Paul here, what happened on the cross was an actual substitution of his death for my death, a death which I owed as the just penalty for my sin and rebellion against God. And according to Paul here, when Jesus died as my substitute, I really and truly died too. And not only that, but now that he has been raised to life, as verse 15 reminds us, I now live in him as well. And as Jesus himself said, there's no greater love than this, that a man give up his life for his friends. And according to Paul, it is that great and giving love that is on his mind as he writes here. And from what Paul tells us, it's clear that once we understand the depth and the meaning of this love, nothing can ever be the same about us ever again. You see, there's a very clear logic about all of this to Paul. It's very simple for him. He says, if Jesus died and rose again for us, then, he says, we died and we rose again spiritually in him when we placed our faith in him alone for salvation. And that means, then, that the life I live now is and must be fundamentally different from the life that I lived before I encountered Jesus. You see, before, I used to live for self. Not just in the sense that I was selfish, but also in the more refined sense that self was the central reference point for everything else going on in my life. But now, like Paul, we live for him who died for us. He's become the center of our universe. And because that's true, to live for him means that we now also have to live for those whom Jesus lived for and for whom he died as well. You see, according to Paul here, once we take that logic to heart, we'll realize that we have no choice but to live in light of this love-driven logic from here on out. It will drive us forward. Now, the word that the NIV translates compels here is an interesting word. It's a graphic word. It gets translated a number of different ways. But the best way to to me, it seems, is to translate it with the word constrains. The love of Christ constrains us, Paul says. And the reason I like that translation is because it helps us sense the pressure that Paul feels. A pressure, you see, that is exerted on him by the weight of Jesus' love for him here. It squeezes Paul more and more into a narrower and narrower chute as it pushes him forward in ministry to others. And as it pushes him forward, this pressure pushes him outward to the world. It also pushes him upward to the source of that love as well. And the thing that you and I need to grasp is that as we begin to bend more and more to this same kind of pressure, as we sense the the love of Jesus for us, we will actually begin to live the resurrection life of Jesus that we were born in Christ to live. And that is a life that is truly a life worth living. Not only in our own estimation, but it is the kind of thing that Jesus died to produce in us as well. It is what matters in the estimation of Jesus the judge. Now, at the Brunson household, 
The only place for the garbage cans is in the garage, which is handy. That means I can take out the garbage in my bathrobe without frightening the neighbors. The, uh, the other thing is it means is that no critters can get in there to make a mess out of things. However, there is a downside. When you live in Mississippi and it's hot for six months of the year and it's baking for three of those six months, after a while, the garage starts to smell, shall we say, a little funky. Um, well, that fact, put wash the garbage cans on my to-do list one Saturday as delivered by my wife, Karen, who observes funkiness a little more quickly than I do. Now, look, washing the garbage cans could be an unpleasant task, but Karen sweetened the deal with a new toy. She got us a new spray nozzle to go in the hose. Of course, it took me a while to make, like, the water come out of it because it was a new piece of technology and I had to work it out. But when I finally did, uh, I had a blast, no pun intended, blowing the gunk off all the sides of those cans. Well, let me tell you, what I witnessed there that day in my backyard was the power of constraint. And the more constrained that stream of water became, the greater impact it had on all that it touched. Well, according to Paul here, the power of constraint is where the power for living the Christian life comes from. And that is how our lives make an impact for the glory of God in this world and for the spiritual good of others as well. And so the question that each of us needs to ask ourselves today is this. To what degree does my awareness of just how loved I am by Christ constrain the choices and the priorities of my life? You see, friends, we are all constrained by something. There's always something that is pressing us and driving us forward in life. The false teachers here in Corinth were driven by their need to impress, by their need to be thought important, by their greed, by their desire for worldly success, and and all sorts of motives that really aren't all that foreign to me either, and I suspect they're not foreign to you. But you see, Paul had something else in mind. After all, according to Paul in verse 9, the life that he wants to live is one, as he says here, that is pleasing to Christ. We make it our goal, he says, to please him, whether we are at home in the body, in this life, or away from it, standing in his presence. His goal is to please the Lord. And the thing that presses him forward to make the choices necessary to reorient himself around God and around those whom God loves is the love that Christ lavished on him at Calvary's cross. And friends, the more we become personally, tangibly, and constantly aware of how much we are loved like that, the more we will experience that same positive pressure exerted by that love on us to empower the life that we want to live out of love for the one who first loved us. Well, now, when we were in New Orleans, I found a little book. Actually, Karen found it and pointed it out to me, and I quickly snatched it up because it just looked so strange. But it was interesting. It was an odd little book. It was filled with pictures and poetry and all sorts of things. But it was a biography about a British chaplain in World War I who was nicknamed by the troops Woodbean Willie. Woodbean Willie. He said, during the war, you see, he would board the trains in France that were taking the soldiers to the front, and he always carried with him two knapsacks. One of those would be full of wood-bean cigarettes and the other full of New Testaments. And basically, he would start at the front of the train, work his way through, and hand both out to the soldiers as they were getting ready to go into battle. And he would work, and sometimes he'd be hanging on the back car because it was pulling out of the station as he's handing them in through the window. And he was a faithful pastor as well, generous and effective in the slums both before the war and after the war as well, a real real gifted and and remarkable man. But according to his biographer, he had one knock on him. The knock on Willie 
was his absent-mindedness. He's the sort of guy who would ride his bike across the river for a haircut and then walk home and then have to go back and pick up his bike and ride it home too. He would get so caught up in a conversation at the church after a funeral service that he'd forget to go to the graveside and do the cemetery version. You know, that sort of thing. Well, I can appreciate Willie's struggle. I really can, especially since spiritually I am just like him. I forget the things I need to remember about who I am in Christ and why I am that way in Christ on a regular basis. I forget because I get so caught up in the moment that those greater truths are just lost on me. Maybe you're a little like that too. Well, friends, for the love of Christ to constrain us, to press us and empower us toward a life that is well-lived in service to God and to service to others, we have to do better than that. We have to remember this love and let it do its work in us over and over again. And that's why we're here at this table that Jesus gave us for that very purpose. So as we come to the table and take the emblems of Christ's death for us once again, may God grip us with the depth of the love of Jesus for us. And may that love constrain us toward a life that brings glory to the Father and the grace of the gospel to others as we daily live in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy to us. Lord, you are so gracious to us. You love us in a way that we cannot even begin to comprehend. Father, how we thank you that that love is what we will be celebrating and remembering here at this table in just a moment. But Father, as we do, may it constrain us we know that love personally and experientially in Christ, may it constrain us to greater love for you and greater love for others and to choices that are consistent with that. Father, if there's one here who does not yet know that love personally, may today be the day that they turn in the quietness of their own heart to you and ask to be forgiven of their sins and to receive that gift of love that you've promised in the gospel and secured by the death of Jesus on our behalf. Father, hear us and receive us now as we come to the table. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.